0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel. And today we're talking to Martin Summers, a professor of history at Boston College and the author of Madness in the City of Magnificent Intentions, a History of Race and Mental Illness in the Nation's Capital, which was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. Martin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Claire. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here.
0: I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, sure. Well, as you mentioned, I am a professor of history and African and African diaspora studies uh, at Boston College. I have been in the academy for a little over 20 years, actually probably closer to 25 years now. I uh, received my PhD at uh, Rutgers University, in 1997, and um, I was actually trained as a a cultural historian of the African-American experience, and I had particular interests in uh, gender and sexuality uh, of late 19th and early uh, 20th century. Um, I worked with uh, David Levering Lewis, uh, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. Uh, He's the Biographer of W. B. Du Bois, as long as well as author of a number of other uh, books on African American history, and Deborah Gray White, who uh, is probably the, one of the preeminent historians of uh, African American women's history. Uh, her book um, "Aren't I a Woman?" Uh, about female slaves in uh, the antebellum South, uh, published in 1985, is really one of the classic works. So I was. Really fortunate to work with uh, both of them. Uh, they were essentially co-advisors as I uh, worked on my dissertation, mm-hmm. and um, certainly uh, continued to give me uh, both uh, academic uh, and, and professional advice, or I should say, been intellectual sounding boards mm-hmm. uh, for me uh, since my uh, since my years in graduate school.
0: And how did you come to write Madness in the City of Magnificent Intentions? Because it uh, in the beginning of the book, the in the acknowledgments, I think you say this was not the book that you, <laughs> uh, you set out to write.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I actually pretty much stumbled into uh, the book. Um, as I said, I w- was really um, interested in gender and sexuality in African-American history around the turn of the 20th century. And so I uh, my dissertation was on black middle class masculinity in the early 20th century. And I. Uh, subsequently revised that and published it as uh, a book in 2004 and I was uh, searching for a second project uh, and I I still wanted to write something about black masculinity but I decided that I was going to focus on um, African-American men's relationship to the state uh, by really looking at how African-American men in a number of uh, different kinds of institutions uh, experience their masculinity and you know, subsequently attempted to construct a, a gendered sense of self. Uh, and so the, the universe the, I should say the institutions that I was interested in looking at were the prison, the military, uh, the school and the hospital. And I thought that Washington DC would be a real ideal place uh, because of uh, the presence of the US penitentiary uh, Howard University, which was a, uh, a college that was founded after the Civil War to educate freed people. Uh, Freedmen's Hospital, which again was a hospital founded after the Civil War to, uh, to provide care for uh, freed people and subsequently became the teaching host- hospital for Howard University's medical school. And... Um, And, of course, there's a a significant military presence in in Washington, D.C. And so in the summer of 2001, I began uh, the research by going to uh, the National Archives. And I began looking at the Freedmen's Bureau records. And I actually grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And so I was aware of St. Elizabeth's Hospital. uh, And I noticed that there there was a a record group uh, of St. Elizabeth's of records at, uh, national, at the national archives. Mm -hmm. So it was towards the end of my research trip. Uh, I just decided to begin poking around in those records. And the first thing that I looked at was the register book, um, which did you imagine was this incredibly large, uh, bound volume, uh, dating back to 1855. That was the first year that uh, the hospital was open. And, um, Uh, the the spine's deteriorating, the the corners of the pages are fraying. And I just decided to start, I, I noticed that they were, the hospital was admitting, uh, black patients. And so I just started building a database of patients there, again, thinking that it was just going to be part of a larger, this larger history about black masculinity in the state. And then, uh, I, I came across uh, the entry of one patient who was admitted in 1866, and I talk a little bit about her in the book at the beginning of chapter two. And she was admitted uh, with a diagnosis of mania, and it, there was um, in the register book, there's also a column for the supposed cause, uh, and uh, the, the clerk wrote in uh, the column. Uh, the blackness of her husband, and uh, and I had no idea what that meant, uh, and so, uh, but it really stuck with me, and I left the National Archives that summer, and just decided to start reading uh, the uh, scholarship on the history of psychiatry in the United States, and it became very clear to me early on that there weren't any, there weren't very many books that um or histories that use race as a category of historical analysis so i just decided that at that point uh this was a this was a huge gap in the scholarship Mm -hmm. and uh i i decided that i would just go ahead and write a history of saint elizabeth's and um and its relationship to washington dc's african-american community as a way of getting at these larger questions about um, the uh, the role that ideas about racial difference have played in the development of psychiatry as a as a profession.
0: Well, the book definitely does that, and it does that <laughs> well. I think. I mean, I think it's it's destined for for classic status. Um, okay.
1: Oh, there, there, there's also one one quick thing too. I forgot to mention. Um, there, there's actually a real irony here too. Is that. Uh, I went to Rutgers University and I actually took class with Gerald Robb who was the foremost historian of psychiatry and uh, but at the time when I was at graduate school I I had no interest in the history of medicine or the history of psychiatry and so uh, I only later um, you know kind of we restarted our relationship I guess after I had begun work on this book uh, and seeing him at conferences and uh, so it, it's quite interesting that again I, I studied with uh, him, but uh, and I would later go on to actually uh, write in a field that he essentially was almost single-handedly responsible that's for
0: <laughs> for
1: uh, for for developing.
0: That's funny. That is a, that's uh, quite a coincidence. Or I I don't yeah I don't know what we would call it. Um, I. I um, I'd like to ask you to, to talk a little bit about St. Elizabeth's Hospital. I, In the history of psychiatry, I see there, uh, in, in my view, there's often a kind of tension in, in the books about whether the history of a given institution, asylum or sanitar- whatever sanitarium or whatever, can stand in for the history of psychiatry mm-hmm. it's, itself as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if you could talk about um, St. Elizabeth's and why, um, why it's a significant institution.
1: Yeah. Um, so, well, as I mentioned, it's, um, it's significant for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, it's one of the only, or it's one of two, I should say, um, federal asylums in uh, the country, uh, for, you know, of the 19th century and much of the 20th century actually it was the only federal asylum uh, in the country in the 19th century, and was joined by the Canton Asylum in South Dakota for "quote unquote" insane Indians uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and a- as a result, uh, it did get actually quite uh, uh, there. There was a there was a significant investment of resources. In the institution, although you know, like most asylums, it, it suffered from you kind know, of chronic over, overcrowding. Uh, um, but from this, from this, the its very earliest, uh, you know, from, from its very founding, I should say, uh, it admitted black patients. Right, uh, the, the initial mandate of the hospital was to uh, house and rehabilitate uh, people who were under federal uh, jurisdiction or in federal custody. And for the most part, that meant sailors and soldiers who had become insane, uh, as well as uh, U.S. residents in territories who didn't have any state uh, citizenship. Um, But because it was situated in the District of Columbia and Washington, D.C. did not have a county uh, asylum. Um, Again, from its very, uh, beginnings, uh, its officials it admitted a residence, civilian residents of Washington, D.C., those who are too poor to afford uh, private treatment and the significant black population in Washington, D.C. So from, again, its very beginnings, it admitted uh, African-American patients. And, uh, and so it's one of the few asylums, in especially in the South, uh, that did so, and even the two other asylums in the south, the numbers of black patients didn't um, approach the percentage of black patients as a total population uh, in, in 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 Saint Elizabeth. Uh and so 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 Saint Elizabeths always had a a very you know, uh, racially diverse uh, population, and so so. So for me, uh, that really provided an opportunity to look at how, again, ideas of racial difference actually uh, shaped the way that psychiatrists thought about uh, insanity, thought about mental health, and then subsequently, you know, uh, uh, treated uh, their black patients. I think the other thing that makes it significant, and again. Uh, the, the, the racially diverse uh, population, patient population is is relevant here, is that there was St. Elizabeth's in many ways was on the cutting edge of uh, psychiatric, the production of psychiatric knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, um, therapeutics, right? So it was the first hospital to one of the first hospitals to employ hydrotherapy, um, and it did so in, in the late 19th century. Um, its uh, s- superintendent in the, from the first 30 years of the 20th century, William Allenson White, was, uh, was one of, of the, the foremost promoters of uh, psychoanalysis in the American psychiatric profession, and he actually introduced psychotherapy uh, into St. Elizabeth's, uh, the you know, popularizer of uh, the lobotomy, William Freeman, uh, worked mm-hmm. at St. Elizabeth's in the 1930s, although William Allenson White was opposed to the use of lobotomy. And so he didn't, he didn't do, um, in fact, I don't think that he did any of his uh, uh, lobotomies at St. Elizabeth's. Uh, he began, he really was, you know, he did most of them in private practice or at other, other asylums. Um, and so so one of the things that I think, and then this gets to the other question about, does this actually, does St. Elizabeth stand in, or how does this stand in for the history of psychiatry uh, as as a whole? I, mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about uh, the history of psychiatry is that race has always been a really kind of enigmatic variable when mm-hmm. psychiatrists kind of think about, uh, you know, uh, what is mental illness, what is mental health? Are there particular groups that are prone or susceptible to mental illness um, to begin with or particular uh, types of mental illness, particular manifestations of mental illness? And so um, a lot of these questions were being worked out. Uh, um, The answers were being sought after in St. Elizabeth's and it was precisely the the presence of this large black pot that patient population that allowed them to kind of do some of this, some of this work. Uh, although at the end of the day, you know, they uh, they were no uh, uh, closer to kind of finding uh, or being able to explain actually what role race or racial difference played in uh, the etiology uh, or the manifestation of uh, mental illness.
0: Let's talk a little bit about St. Elizabeth's roots. Um, so it, it, its founding and its operation in the era of, of what's often called moral treatment. Um, you, um, you detail how, how this, this founding is, is related essentially to kind of a racist medical science um, and the production of, of knowledge, you know, psych, psychiatric research and knowledge. Could you tell us a little bit about what Saint Elizabeth's looked like to, looked like when it was founded? Um, why would patients seek admission there? Why would Black patients seek admission there? Um, and then, what kind of research was being produced?
1: Yeah, so uh, so it was founded in in the mid nineteenth century, so eighteen fifty five was the uh, year that it opened and. Uh, it was actually only—that's actually only 11 years after the uh, founding of the uh, Association for uh, the—I can never remember—AMSI, M- the, the the first kind of psychiatric uh, profession, which was uh, founded in 1844, and um, the the principal therapeutic regime at that time was moral treatment, right? And so the idea was that. Uh, best way to cure um the the mentally ill were was to remove them from the source of their psychical distress and uh place them in a very tranquil kind of idyllic uh environment where you could really regulate their behavior make sure they've gotten enough sleep they had a nutritious diet um they uh weren't idle so they they you know they were they were employed uh, in, in, in certain uh, in, in certain ways and um, and so and, and that they also be situated uh, that the uh, asylum be situated in a very healthy uh, environment um, and so you know one that was you know uh, not exposed to uh, you know uh, fevers right so it's mm-hmm. so in Washington DC for instance it's a, a very uh, especially in the 19th century, low-lying uh, areas, um, a very malarial environment. So it was really important to uh, situate the, the hospital uh, at a higher elevation, um, and and so 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 the ho- so the hospital's officials uh, were very uh, particular about citing the the the. the the location or citing the institution, and they wanted to make sure that it was in an environment where uh, white patients, or I should say, white, uh, local white residents uh, were not very uh, sick, were not, you know, that there wasn't high incidence of uh, fever or malaria. And and you see actually this being articulated uh, very uh, overtly in much of the correspondence uh, between the officials. And then, you know, they also had to deal. They also had to um, deal with this question of, well, you know, how are you going to, um, how are you going to house uh, this uh, again racially diverse mm-hmm. patient population? And so, um, they basically created separate lodges for the quote unquote colored patients uh, that were somewhat removed from the central building. And uh, the way that they the way that they justified this was essentially by making the argument that it would be very stressful for white patients to occupy the same uh, uh, dorms or, or I should say uh, wards as uh, black patients, and so the proximity to black patients uh, would impede uh, white patients' recovery. And and so so this uh, logic of of racial difference, um, Mm -hmm. essentially also a racist justification of segregation was very much built into uh, the therapeutic logic um, uh, that characterized the hospital. Um, To your question, why would Black patients want to have been admitted. So this is a really interesting one because St. Elizabeth's actually did not, uh, I'm sorry, I should say, Washington, D.C. did not have a voluntary admissions law until 1948. They were actually quite late. Uh, mm. you know, states had begun uh, passing voluntary admissions laws in the early 20th century, the 19 teens. Um, first decade of of the 20th century in the 19-teens, but it wasn't until 1948 that Washington, D.C. passed a a, a voluntary admissions law. And so most of the patients did not seek to be admitted, right? They were were admitted by either uh, their uh, family members, right, Uh, or by uh, the... Uh, uh, local officials, right? The the metropolitan police, uh, for instance, and and, and then they they had to go through a very um, a, a a a a very a, a bureaucratic process to be admitted, right? You had to have two uh, uh, physicians test, uh, testify that they were in fact insane. You had to have two uh, DC residents t- testify that. Uh, the individual was incapable of self-support uh, before they were actually admitted to uh, the hospital. Now again, there there were some and and I write about this in in the book um, quite extensively there were bitty uh, uh, black Washingtonians who uh, did feel like Saint Elizabeths was a um, was an institution that they could turn to uh, to actually, deal with, uh, the problem, uh, that a mentally ill, uh, member of the family posed. And so, um, and so, so, so it was not unusual for, for, uh, black Washingtonians, uh, to try to get their, um, loved ones admitted to the hospital and then to also, you know, uh, Continue to try to manage their therapeutic experience once they were were in the hospital, and there are actually a a, a handful of occasions I well uh, the instances I I found where um, some black patients who were already in Saint Elizabeth's sought to stay even though mm-hmm. uh, the officials thought that they had recovered enough to be uh, discharged and. Uh, you know some of the reasons that they wanted to stay was because they their um, life outside of the institution was very precarious for them right they, they may not have had any economic opportunities viable economic opportunities so the fact that uh, they actually worked in the hospital not for any money but that they worked in the hospital was was one reason that they may have stayed or that they actually got medical care uh, not for, their, uh, mental illness, but for, you know, their, uh, bodily infirmities or, uh, you know, so, so these are some of the reasons that some patients may have wanted to stay is because staying inside, having, you know, uh, regu- getting regular meals was better than the uncertainty of the unknown outside of the hospital.
0: And what was the treatment at the time? What was moral treatment for black patients and for white patients?
1: So, um, again, it's just make, making sure that they were in um, a, a fairly uh, peaceful uh, environment and uh, making sure that they got plenty of sleep, uh, a nutritious diet. Um, also, when it came to uh, the, the, there needed to also be a fairly uh, a, a good balance, I should say, between labor and leisure. And so. Um, but but labor meant different things for Black patients and white mm-hmm. patients, right? So mm-hmm. uh, so for Black patients, labor uh, meant working in uh, menial jobs that kept the hospital functioning. So Black women uh, worked primarily in the hospital's laundries. Uh, black men worked uh, primarily in kind of clearing of uh, fields, um, uh, as as being essentially the uh, the unskilled labor on in the major kind of infra- infrastructural projects on the hospital's uh, campus or working in uh, the kitchen uh, and so uh, and these were these were uh, forms of employment that would characterize black patient life throughout uh, the f- first half of the 20th century as well and again it was framed as, uh, labor, right? So I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Therapy that, that mm-hmm. essentially, uh, which you, which you, from from the hospital officials' perspective, what you're doing is also, you're you're resocializing um, these mentally ill individuals, uh, so that once they are in fact released, they will be able to enter into those kinds of social roles that they occupied before uh, coming into the hospital, but in some ways that also very much uh, ignored the existence of class difference w- uh, amongst black Washingtonians because not every uh, black Washingtonian who was admitted to St. Elizabeth's was, say, working class. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, and, and then on the flip side of that, uh, white uh, patients, well, white male patients uh Essentially uh, engaged in farm labor, which was actually seen as something that was much—it uh, was, it was much—it was a much more desirable uh, um, uh, a job on uh, at Saint Elizabeth's uh, than, say, again working clearing fields or uh, excavating uh, ditches and, and things of that nature. And then uh, the female patients—they're. Um, uh, hesitate to call it a form of employment but the activities that uh, they did were things like uh, needlework uh, and, and so these kinds of uh, activities that might be associated more with uh, the the tasks or the duties of uh, middle-class homemakers
0: I think therapeutic labor is the term that you yes use. Is mm-hmm. that is that the term that that, that the the um that the therapists used at the time
1: no that well that was my that's that's my uh yeah but but they def, well they definitely use the term labor um and 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 for and they framed labor as a form of therapy absolutely
0: um i i'd like to talk about the types of research that mm-hmm. that um were, were being produced so um so so the research initially um that was being produced um i'm trying to think of a way of a way to phrase it um sort of um put forward the theory that black and white psyches were kind of fundamentally different Mm -hmm. is that can can you tell us a little bit about that research um what were some of the assumptions that it made, and what were some of the the findings that were reported?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so this idea that uh, the black and white psyche were fundamentally different, I think, really goes back to the mid nineteenth century, before you had even any kind of comparative psychology research going on at uh, the hospital. I, I don't they they weren't really pursuing uh, psychology. I'm sorry, research in this area until. The 20th century, but it, but but the the questions that they were uh, seeking to answer through this research had existed uh, much earlier, right? Again, um, uh, it, it wasn't even a question of whether or not. Uh, the black and white psyches were different. It was just how were they different, right? What explains their difference? Uh, that, so there was an a priori assumption that the black and white psyches uh, were were in fact different, and um, and you, you certainly see that in the ways that uh, these physicians in the mid nineteenth uh, and up through the uh, late nineteenth century were were talking about uh, black insanity, right? For, I mean. Going back to this this fundamental question: Was it possible for black people to become insane to begin with? And if so, then what did that insanity look like, and how did it differ from uh, white insanity? So one of the the one of the psychiatric or one psychiatric consensus in the late nineteenth century was that black people were are, uh, were more prone to mania. Uh, than they were melancholia, whereas white patients were or the white insane were more prone to melancholia than, uh, than mania. And, um, and so, uh, so by the time you get to the, the early 20th century, uh, and you, know, so they're operating from the assumption uh, that, in fact, black and white, uh, the black and white psyche are fundamentally different. And uh, again, the, the, the main question uh, was, well, what explains that difference? And, and then as an ancillary uh, question uh, to, to that was, um, can, we, can we think about, well, there were two ancillary questions. Uh, is, is there a way that we can look, at, take kind of the, the, the black psyche um, and, uh, and particularly the black um the damaged psyche and d- will that give us any insight into how to uh approach uh the um the damaged white psyche right uh and so and and um and, and so that was that was one but then also i think connect I shouldn't say connected to that uh, another question here also um was well it, it is there anything in um, in our knowledge about the black uh, psyche that will actually help us, you know, um, if not cure, certainly care for the black mentally ill? Right. So, so this is one of the and this is one of the things that I um, I try to do with the book is um, just not acknowledge that there were um, kind of. Uh, racist or racialist dimensions, right, to mm-hmm. the, uh, the the psychiatric knowledge that was produced uh, that, you know, the, the impulse um, to pursue this comparative psychology uh, research was in some ways animated by uh, a fundamental belief in Black difference and also Black inferiority. But at the same time, these uh, psychiatrists also uh, did not completely abandon uh, this mission of also caring for uh, mentally ill Blacks. And so really kind of thinking about how these two uh, really kind of coexisted in this, uh, in this space and the effects that it had on uh, Black patients. So, uh, so so, to get back to the questions, what kind of, what, what were they finding uh, well, this is the thing. I mean, in, in many ways, it, they were just rehashing many of these uh, uh, earlier kind of 19th century ideas about the differences between uh, the black and white psyche, right? Kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, black, blacks are, uh, are more prone to, um, to experiencing mania or, and even after, say, the, um, this tripartite division of insanity between mania, melancholy and dementia had been displaced by the introduction of the um, the, the diagnostic concepts of uh, dementia precox or later schizophrenia and manic depressive disorder. Um, the, the, the ways that the uh, black mental illness in the late 19th century, they were just essentially mapped onto these new uh, the, these new diagnostic diagnostic concepts. So even as, for instance, psychiatrists recognized that uh, blacks were blacks did suffer from manic depressive disorder, which had mm-hmm. been assumed to be a predominantly white form of mental illness, they still may they still argued that well, but yes, even though uh, they are they do they do suffer from manic depressive uh, disorder, they're uh, more apt to be uh, to uh, stay in the manic phase than they are in the depressive phase. And again, that's just a, a, a um, it's it's the, it's the old uh, uh, 19th century uh, psychiatric, con, uh, it's a retread of the old mm-hmm. uh, 19th century psychiatric uh, consensus. And then I, the, the last thing I'll say um, about this too is that it. what's really interesting is on more than one occasion you even see the psychiatrists in these articles that they're writing, and 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 this is another thing that's significant about Saint Elizabeth's, It it is in fact uh, most of the uh, scholarship on comparative psychology research came out of Saint Elizabeth's in the nineteen twenties and the nineteen thirties, um, and and so um, and, and uh, in in some instances these uh, psychiatrists who are doing this research, they even acknowledge in the article itself that they have not been able to locate any any, uh, evidence that Mm -hmm. uh, blacks and whites respond to external uh, stimuli any differently, uh, let alone be able to explain (laughs) why they do so, right? They're not even able to observe that uh that this this supposed um uh distinction
0: so the results don't really even match the theory (laughs)
1: exactly exactly
0: um um, how does the rise of dynamic psychiatry change the way mental illness is conceived and treated
1: Mm. yeah so uh so by the time you get to uh again the, the early 20th century uh You know, you have to shift and the the paradigm from neurology to uh, dynamic uh, psychiatry, right? Neurology basically uh, arguing that there's a somatic basis to uh, mental illness, um, and uh, and it's also uh, hereditary, or in many cases, it's hereditary to um, dynamic psychiatry's uh, argument or framing of. A mental illness as a result of uh, maladaptation, right? So, uh, um, in order to uh, lead a, a, a mentally healthy lifestyle, or, or uh, a mentally healthy lifestyle is, it, it equates to kind of um, the social adjustment, right? Kind mm-hmm. of appropriate social adjustment. Uh, and then there are those who aren't able to adjust, and so they become maladapted, and that might be the result of kind of psychosexual conflict or uh, interpersonal uh, relationships. And, um, and so one, one expression uh, of, of dynamic psychiatry, is not the sole expression uh, of dynamic psychiatry, but one is psychoanalysis, or I should mm-hmm. say one form of dynamic psychiatry, is psychoanalysis. And many psychoanalysts believe that psychosis was the result of an individual's regression to their race's ancestral past or a more primitive stage of the race's development. Um, but in the early 20th century, you know, uh, African-Americans were still thought to be uh, primitive, right, a much more mm-hmm. primitive uh, than, than whites. And so since African-Americans were presumed to be more primitive to begin with, uh, psychiatrists were still confronted with this question of whether a black person exhibiting symptoms of psychosis was actually psychotic, right? Or were they just uh, exhibiting the kind of normal characteristics of their, of their primitive uh, culture? Mm-hmm. And so, so, so again, this erases the enigmatic enigmatic variable uh, still very much shaped the way that uh, dynamic psychiatrists were thinking about, um, about mental illness. And, uh, and, and then the way that played itself out in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, their, uh, uh, therapeutics. So what I was able to, um, kind of establish and argue through the, um, looking at these case files. Uh, well, first of all, I should also say that St. Elizabeth's was a really large, Uh, uh, institution. And so the, the, the patients, the number of patients who uh, actually received psychotherapy were were fairly small, but there were some black patients who did receive psychotherapy. And of course there were white patients who received psychotherapy. One of the things that I um, uh, uh, argued after looking at these case files uh, was that from, from, the psychiat- psychiatrists perspective, um, they weren't so much interested in really, uh, when, when they engaged uh, in, uh, psychotherapy with black patients, they weren't so much interested at getting at the root of, of their psychological problems, right. Kind of really kind of, uh, delving into, uh, the, the, black patients complexes. Um, in, in the same way that they were with, with white patients. And, and you see also this, uh, you see the, this in the way that the, the psychiatrists talk about, not so much in their exchanges with black patients, but in the articles they write about. Uh, um, and, and so there's this discourse about the, the, quote-unquote, inaccessibility of the black psyche. Uh, and, and some of this is, again, shaped by ideas about a fundamental uh, racial difference, right? Um, that, uh, you know, that um, the experiences of black people are so fundamentally different from whites that it's really, it's, it's really impossible to fully understand um, the black interiority. And then also that blacks are kind of naturally duplicitous, right? Um, and, and so, uh, so that, that kind of inaccessibility is compounded by uh, the uh, kind of blacks kind of naturally deceptive um, uh, um, uh, uh, temperaments or demeanors. And so, so, so in that sense, um, for for what what I what I argue in the book is that psychotherapy was aimed not so much at curing right um, uh, black patients, but just really dealing with their the, the that's the surface uh, problems, uh, really kind of getting them to the point uh, where they might be well enough to. Do work in 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 the hospital, right? Go to the laundry, uh, go to the kitchen, Um, and and then there's also uh, the continued use of other uh, forms of therapy, um, kind of somatic-based therapies such as hydrotherapy uh, and uh, mechanical, the quote-unquote mechanical restraints, right? Labor again was um, was something that uh, still formed a very uh, significant. A part of the therapeutic uh, paradigm for uh, Black patients.
0: What uh, was really, even
1: after, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, Mm
0: -hmm. What was really striking to me reading the book was how you have this paradigm shift, right, from moral Mm -hmm. treatment to more dynamic psychiatry. And Mm -hmm. these are supposed to be two, you know, two very different paradigms, ways of thinking about, you know, Mm -hmm. mind and, and mental health. Um, and they, but they were equally racist, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, and, right. um, and, and then the way that they, that, 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 um, therapy was actually carried out
1: mm-hmm. on, on,
0: with patients on a day-to-day basis, um, didn't necessarily change that much with the, the, the grand paradigm shift either.
1: No, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and, uh. <sighs> Uh, and I don't I actually don't think I say that, so that's, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you that you saw that, uh, because that's the, you know and that's the other thing too is that you you continue to see the 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 resurfacing of these older ideas that go back to the 19th century. So again, even after the turn to uh, psychiatric universalism after World War II. Right, uh, where psychiatrists essentially abandon the idea that there is, in fact, um, these fund this fundamental difference between the black and, and the white psyche. They're still talking about uh, black mental illness as being fundamentally different from white mental illness, right? So, so you have this uh, this turn towards um, explaining why. Uh, um, African Americans are disproportionately susceptible or prone to schizophrenia, which is again, it's just uh, a um, a a retread of blacks are more prone to mania, right? Especially after schizophrenia becomes associated with aggressiveness, um, and, uh, and and criminality, and then also um, the in in the nineteen fifties. Uh, you, in, in the 1960s, you also have psychiatrists beginning to, again, explain uh, the uh, surge in rates of mental illness among African-Americans as a result of their uh, becoming uh, equal right? mm-hmm. as a result of the civil rights movement. And they can't quite handle integration and competing with whites on uh, an equal playing field. And that is a reverberation of the that, that um, the, the discourse of uh, freedom, right, uh, mm-hmm. causing uh, insanity uh, or elevated rates of insanity among uh, African-Americans in the 1880s and the 1890s.
0: So um, I, we're, we're running out of time, and, I, and I, I still have a couple more questions I want oh, to yeah. make sure that we get to before we do our traditional final question. Um, what... To to kind of quickly um, bring us uh, through the end of the book and up to the present, what um, you you touched on a little bit, what what happens to this um, story after World War Two, and then what is the status of of Saint Elizabeth's Mm -hmm. today? You can just bring us up to speed to the present.
1: So, Saint after World War Two is very interesting. as I mentioned earlier, St. Elizabeth's main mission was to house and rehabilitate soldiers and sailors. Uh, and so after World War II, basically the military uh, stopped sending um, its uh, you know, mentally ill service members to St. Elizabeth's. And, and that's largely for two reasons. Um, one was St. Elizabeth's like uh, many uh, uh, large uh, public hospitals around the country uh, we're starting to be seen as snake pits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, these these faci- these large facilities, kind of warehousing uh, mentally ill people and not providing any treatment. And then uh, the the other uh, factor that contributed to that was that the VA system begins uh, building uh, psychiatric hospitals, and so that so so these uh, soldiers and sailors are going to redirected there and. And what ends up happening is that the demographics of the hospital shift dramatically uh, so that um, it basically becomes a civilian hospital. And because it's located in Washington, D.C., which uh, by the uh, 1960s is a majority black city, uh, the hospital uh, uh, really becomes, you know, the, the, the patient population becomes primarily African American. Also, uh, uh, geriatric patients suffering from chronic mental illnesses, and it really becomes associated again with uh, kind of the worst elements of uh, a a public uh, mental hospital or a state mental hospital. Um, It actually loses accreditation in the early Mm -hmm. 1970s before it it reacquires it in in the mid um, in the mid 1970s. And again, like other uh statemental institutions it uh eventually went through a process of deinstitutionalization uh so that now um it is primarily a uh a, an outpatient you know it, it it um it serves an outpatient population um and uh i think that something like 99 percent of the patients uh, I probably shouldn't use that that specific. Yeah. Uh, a, a very large a very large percentage of <laughs> patients at St. Elizabeth's are forensic patients. Mm-hmm. So they're either there uh, because they've been um, they've been um, uh, found not guilty by reason of insanity or they're awaiting psychiatric evaluation before they go uh, to court. Uh, and so, but having said that too, it's also, um, what's really interesting to uh, St. Elizabeth's is it's going through a bit of a renaissance as well. Um, it has a new state of the art hospital uh, and much of the campus is, um, it's in Southeast uh, DC, which is in, in one of the poor communities in the District of. Columbia, and so uh, there's a lot of development that's going on. Actually, the Department of Homeland Security has moved in and oh. has taken over the original part of the campus uh, oh. with the with the with the center building, uh, and uh, so, and and I, I think the hope is that uh, that the presence of DHS will generate ancillary businesses and will be economically beneficial for. Uh, Anacostia, which is the the, the neighborhood that surrounds um, uh, surrounds uh, uh, Saint Elizabeth's.
0: So, back to your original research question: this history mm-hmm. of this of this community and this and the state um, continues.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Um, I. I've got one more question before our traditional final question. And um, I asked if I could quote from the end of the book because Mm -hmm. it is just, um, it's so beautifully written and you said I could. So um, at at the end of the book uh, addresses the magnificent intentions in the book's title. And you write at times these, and and in particular, um, the, the intentions in regard to, um, the misguided and, and often racist ideals of the institution's mm-hmm. medical providers but also the intentions refer to the intentions and the expectations of black sufferers and their mm-hmm. families
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you write at times these intentions were in accord with those of, of black sufferers and their families who ran the institution at others they were in conflict in the end the history of race and mental illness is the story of the distance between expectations and limitations between medical altruism and racism between medical objectification and sufferers agency and between the aspirational and the real. Um, what lessons might the history of St. Elizabeth's have, um, for, for those of us working on advancing racial equity and justice in academic medicine today?
1: Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for reading that, uh, that quote. I, um, so I think I think two things, and from two different perspectives. So one from kind of, uh, you know health professionals, uh, those people who are in a position uh, to providing care for uh, sufferers who, as you know, are um, are at their most vulnerable when they're in uh, these kinds of relationships with mm-hmm. um, with clinicians, and. And I think, and this is, again, something that runs through the book, um, which I've really tried to, to highlight. I, I, I didn't want to write a book that basically said that you know sci- psychiatry is a racist project, and, and right. it's always yeah. been. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that, because I, I do believe that um, psychiatrists or physicians in general go into their line of work with a desire to heal. Um, but often that desire to heal is really compromised by a belief in racial difference um, and and the inferiority of, of black people. And, and and sometimes that belief is is unconscious. often it is unconscious. Um, but and, but but how you know again, this desire to heal and this belief in racial difference is, can coexist. They do coexist um, and they shape the ways that that uh, uh, that 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 healthcare is delivered in this country, and so I I would hope that you know this is something that we need to constantly be, um, you know, be, be attentive to uh, and be be on guard uh, against. And then from the other the other's perspective um, about black uh, about black people's relationship to psychiatry and and the medical profession more generally, I think we have this this narrative that there is this fundamental mistrust, that blacks have this fundamental mistrust of, um, of the medical profession and uh, of psychiatry. And, and I think that's t- true to a certain extent, but I also think that it's much more complicated than that. Uh, I, I don't think that blacks only exist in a, a, an apathetic or, or antagonistic relationship to, uh, to the medical profession. Uh, in fact, I think that they have always sought to engage uh, the medical profession uh, to make sure that they are getting the care that they deserve, the same care as as whites do, and so um, and and so I think that it's it's worth keeping that uh, in in mind as well. And it's really it was really reinforced uh, in you know during the during the pandemic is that we. we you know, we we bought into this idea um, un, uncritically that Black people were vaccine hesitant, and that's true to a certain extent. But that, but but at the same time, you know, um, Blacks, it, the, the people would just say, "Well, you just go and you 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 ask, you answer questions that Black people right. have, <laughs> right? Or or you also make sure that there are ways that they can access uh, the the vaccine, it's, it's often as much about access as it is about attitudes. And and, or, and, and so, so so we have to, I think if, on, on both sides, we have to um, have much more uh, complicated um, uh, narratives about uh, the relationship between uh, the uh, physicians, the medical profession, psychiatrists, and, and people of color in this country.
0: Well, Martin, this, the book is a, a wonderful example of how to do that and how to tell those complicated stories. And um, I'm, I'm sure that there will be um, many, many similar books to follow by other scholars. But um, I've also gotten to our traditional final question, <laughs> which is where I'm supposed to ask, um, what is next? What's next for you? What are you working on now?
1: Well, I've absolutely fallen in love with the history of medicine, so I'm (laughs) continuing this work, uh, and it's something that was really, uh, it was an interest that was sparked by, um, as I was finishing up the St. Elizabeth's book, and I was writing the last chapter on deinstitutionalization uh, and community mental health care, and so I'm basically uh, working on a project now that looks at how uh, medical experts and government officials and community grassroots organizations in the second half of the 20th century uh, thought about the relationship between urbanization and mental illness and uh, kind of sometimes collaborated with one another and at other times kind of um, uh, battled with one another over developing Uh, mental health care policies that would address the needs of low income African Americans in urban areas. And so um, it's called inner city blues, tentatively now as inner city blues, um, African American mental health and social policy in 20th century urban America. And right now it looks at Washington, DC, Boston, and, and Chicago.
0: Well, that sounds like a wonderful project, and um, I just selfishly I hope it doesn't take twenty years because <laughs> I too. want to read it right away.
1: <laughs> me too, me too. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> <That's, laughs> thank you,
0: thank you so much for sharing your work with us today.
1: Thank you, thank you for inviting me. I, I had a, I had a wonderful time.